We got a 12 pack of Paps too, don't worry. Okay, I can sense it far away. <laughs> We're all in this together. German beer for the topic. Man <laughs> cannot live on Paps alone. This is true. You got to get acid in there too. Hell yeah. Oh, exact, right. That wow. is the mindset. That's the mindset, man. We should have been hanging out years ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we all, uh, Jacob actually defended his dissertation uh, yesterday and he succeeded. So uh, three of us, uh, not Andy, but the three of us all went out really late last night and got hammered. So we are very hungover. Nice. But, fuck, yeah. Now, when you say defended, uh, I mean, how many, what, would they like whip out pistols or something like that and start <laughs> firing at you guys? Or, is that how academia works? I don't know. I've never you been need a, You need a sword. A broadsword or yeah, a samurai? Gotta, yeah. You got to fight for yourself when they come at you with axes. Wow. That's yeah. that's pretty impressive. So brutal. There's... Do you guys want coffee? Speaking of which, I got... Dr. Bones, you want some, some coffee? coffee? We got coffee. Yeah, if you could, if you could just pour that through right on top of the sure. computer, I'll sense yeah, that as well. No problem. Sam Cedar will appreciate that. Oh, uh, God. He... Did I send you a PDF of the book? Mr. Bones? No, oh, I'm pretty much flying blind in here, but oh, you know, fuck. I've been I've been reading your aura, and what I see is good. So uh, I think you like it. Okay. Uh, it's uh, I think you like it. I should send you the PDF. And yeah, absolutely. I'll do it after this, okay? He's a doctor. Please get I am it right. A Please respect him. <laughs> yeah, d- like Dr. Blumenfeld's uh, swinging his dick around yeah, right now. He just became a doctor, balls. and he's calling him Mr. Bones. That is <laughs> yeah, fucked. Yeah, that I, fucked look, up. I, I did not spend many years in graveyards just to be called <laughs> Mr. Bones. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh the my elitism God. begins <laughs> already. <It's laughs> I'm going to make you my property. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. Hi. I'm Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy. And today we're going to have a very exciting dialogue between two of the foremost thinkers of the German philosopher Max Stirner. Uh, and it'll be revolving around a new book coming out on uh, Zero Books. Is it available now or? Not yet. Okay. Soon to be available on Zero Books called All Things Are Nothing to Me. Um, and in the intro to this book, it says, who would want to share company with the lunatic Max Stirner? And we have two of these people here today to find out, uh, Doctors Bones and Blumenfeld. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Okay. Nice to meet you. So it's my dream to get these two uh, thinkers together. Uh, Blumenfeld is a, uh, Dr. Blumenfeld is a communist interpreter of the philosophy of Stirner, and Bones is an esoteric, egoist, communist, anarchist writer and militant. So... Just to start off, let me ask both of you quickly, why are you interested in Stirner, and, and why do you think he might be important to our listeners? Let's start with Dr. Blumenfeld. Uh, Stirner is, to me, the first radical critic of modernity. He's the first one who really challenged all of our ideals of what it means to be a citizen, uh, a human, um, a subject of the law, the state, a worker. He's the first one to just bring that out from the depths and... Reveal them for what they are, which is forms of alienation, forms of ideology. And I don't know, he just got a strange history. He's been appropriated by so many people on the left and right. He's almost a boogeyman of anarchism, you know, individualist anarchism. Um, and he's really under, I mean, untheorized. He's mostly just a meme or just a character or a sketch that haunts the internet. And I wanted to make more explicit his philosophical framework um, as, a, as kind of a, a relevant challenge to our ideals that we still hold today. Uh, for me, uh, I got into Sterner thanks to the dank memes. Uh, I just kept seeing this face again and again and again until I finally asked, you know, who the fuck is this guy? I read the ego in its own, and it literally blew my head clean across the fucking wall. Um, Sterner is truly radical and revolutionary because he doesn't just ask for 
essentially a new arrangement of force and control of the individual, he is basically telling you that you need to make yourself free, that there needs to be an insurrection, not a revolution, to where everything is centered on yourself. And for me, Stirner's concept of the unique in centering the revolution or the insurrection on the unique rather than categories that have either been forced on us like an economic arrangement i.e. you know being workers or some kind of weird identity thrown onto us or racial category or anything he says you are a limitless unspeakable unknowable unique being let that be the first step you take into this world and and build something off of it and for me especially someone who you know familiar with some concepts in zen taoism western occultism it just uh hit me in the face like a 14 inch dick and just really woke me up it was amazing that's interesting you say that because i when you i think of uh zen philosophy i think of sort of eliminating the concept of the self or the individual right am i misunderstanding that well in Stern's in Sterner's book, he actually talks about that, uh, in, specifically in his uh, Sterner's Critics, which is his response. And people say, oh, you know, the egoist has got to be this super selfish person. And Sterner remarks that a person that's constantly obsessed with themselves is limiting their own wonderful experience of the wider world because they're cutting themselves off from unique and wonderful relationships. A misanthrope is not a real egoist. And Sterner also notes that specifically he mentions when you're going to save someone that's drowning in a lake. You do it because you love that person, because that person brings you pleasure. In that moment, you forget yourself, but you're not doing it because that person drowning in the lake is a worker or, you know, a citizen. You're doing it because you care about them. They are important to you as an individual. You take enjoyment in them. So in the same way, Phil Collins probably should have read this book. So. Uh, if he could have pumped out some jams with that, that would have been pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, before we get too far into uh, Sterner's philosophy and, and his provocations, let's let's talk a little bit about who he was. Um, so uh, this is something that uh, Dr. Blumenfeld describes in his book, um, his uh, emergence in the young Hegelian circle that uh, Proudhon and, and Marx was in. Um, so, uh, Dr. Blumenfeld, who was Max Sterner and, and how did he relate to the young Marx? Sterner was uh, hanging around Berlin in the 1820s and 30s. He went to Hegel's lectures, the founder of dialectical thinking. Um, in these lectures, he sat next to Bakunin, um, perhaps. And they would go drinking afterwards. Well, literally. everybody sat next to Bakunin, right? <laughs> <laughs> they would go drinking at bars in Berlin afterwards and, and just talk and just try, try to make it as, as freaking radical as they could. Uh, Engels was there, Bakunin was there, Marx would show up once in a while, the Bauer brothers were there. Uh, they were influenced by this uh, radical left interpretation of Hegel, started by Feuerbach, in which religion appears as a projection of human beings and not as some force opposing them. These young radical critics like Stirner went even farther, saying, you know, this, this religion is not just a projection of what it means to be human because... There is nothing in what it means to be human. That's also a form of projection. We can be whatever we want to be. We're not necessarily just good, loving, or kind. Um, and um, at this point, Marx started to write. Uh, he edited a journal called the Rheinische Zeitung, and he wrote a little piece on the Jewish question where he defended the idea of the species being as the, the true source of... Problematic fave on the yeah. Jewish question. Yeah. <laughs> on the, the Judenfrage, like we say in Germany, it's a still question. 
And uh, Stirner actually critiqued this idea of species being, too. I mean, he was one of the first critics of Marx when Marx was still like a young lad. Um, Engels thought Stirner was amazing until he hated him because he got so jealous. Um, Because Stirner didn't have... Stirner was... Uh, not limited by any philosophical or or moral framework. He 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 put them all up and tore them all down. So yeah. it's it seems like in this uh, in this circle, uh, what you call the free, they call themselves they call the themselves free. the free or the doctors club. So these were like doctors. The, these were like the you know the the intellectual dark web, the free thinkers of their time. <laughs> oh, and, um, they were all they're all just. It seems like they're just all critiquing each other all the time, and they just got off of it. Like. It's true. Like Proudhon would say something, and Marx would be like, "Ooh, I got something good for you." And then that was the critique of the critical critique, right? Yeah. Uh, but Stirner th- tried to go to the very bottom by not only critiquing uh, the other dudes he was around, but also the very presupposition of his own ego in attempt to reveal the nothingness at the bottom of dialectics. So uh, this is how we get to Stirner's egoism. Is, is that more or less correct? Sh- sure. I mean, Stirner didn't hold any anything in high regard he said nothing could you know stand above us as an idol he even criticized the whole idea of what a self is you know a lot of people think sterner had this robust idea of the ego i'm i'm sure dr bones knows this uh you know but sterner's idea of the self or the ego is nothing there's nothingness there right there's no presupposed conditions there's no it's not it's not just the result of your social structure it's really nothingness and um and bringing that into the fore, what, what does that mean to reveal the nothingness at the heart of yourself? It means that we can take what we want and make it part of ourselves. We can appropriate the world, bring it into our ego. We don't have to force. We don't have to bring ourselves into line with some moral ideals. We can, you know, shit them out of us. And, and so this gets to um, the sort of political approach to Stirner, which we we see in Marx and Engels' critique of Stirner, St. Max, right, mm-hmm. in the critique of German ideology. So what was this critique? Marx and Engels, they read this this book when it came out in 1844. The Ego in Its Own. The, yeah, The Unique in Its Property is actually the better translation. Um, it's called The Einzige und Sein Eigentum. And it's been translated as The Ego in Its Own uh, by an American... Um, individualist Benjamin Tucker, he paid for it, and Steve Bingerton translated it, and they called it the ego in its own because they really had this more egoist interpretation, this individualist interpretation of Stirner. But it's just called the unique in this property. The unique is this concept of this, this kind of nothing, this nothingness at the heart of the individual that can't be categorized, that has no identity. Uh, Marx and Engels read this. They love the idea that we need to start from ourselves, that we can't just have communism or socialism for as an external cause. Um, it's not something that we should just rally around because as a cause or as an ideal, it's a form of alienation from ourselves. It's separate from us. Really, the struggle needs to start from our own material self-interest. Um, they agree with that. I mean, Engels even wrote letters to Marx saying we need to make uh, Stirner's egoism the foundation of communism in a sense. You know, we can't just impose it. However, they thought that the concept of the, of the individual or the ego that Stirner was defending um, was idealist, that it didn't have any real content, um, that it wasn't actually a product of capitalist social relations, and that if we really wanted to target those forms of ideology and alienation that dominate us, we need to get to their sources, and that source is the labor-capital relation. And for Stirner, it's everywhere. It's not just one source of our alienation. You know? But for Marx and Engels, they really try to historicize 
the very production of alienation and ideology and domination. Dr. Bones, do you have any uh, insight about this uh, kind of back and forth between Marx and Engels and Stirner? I mean, uh, yeah, Marx wrote a gigantic, you know, straw man argument railing <laughs> on page after fucking page. And uh, I mean, if anybody has the sheer gumption and the tenacity and the concentration to roll through that and try to climb Marx's, you know, mountain of words, uh, uh, more power to him. But again, uh, as was said here by the wonderful doctor, uh, Sterner was way ahead of the fucking game. In fact, in Sterner's critics, he launches into this critique of gender. His critics say, oh, well, you know, you're talking about how the unique is, is nothing. Well, what? Aren't you a man? Aren't you, you a know, white man? <laughs> yeah. Isn't your maleness Privilege. a key identity? And Sterner says, your maleness is itself a construct. You've Oof. taken a behavior or something inside you. You've put it in this, ideolo- this idealized form male and turned it into this goal to strive for. You, you've literally made it out of thin air and put it above yourself. And now you believe that it owns you and that it's something that determines your behavior. Stirner's critique is, uh, I mean, if anyone's read like Robert Anton Wilson, sort of like general semantics and stuff like that, Stirner was literally starting to cross those barriers, starting to talk about how our language, how our concepts, how our psychological conditions end up informing and controlling our behavior and how we relate to the world and how we'll live or die for them. And, you know, Marx's response, you know, I find it funny that he says, you know, Stirner's being way too idealistic. And at the same time, Marx was sure that the revolution was right around the fucking corner. And then it wasn't. And then he promised, no, this time, <laughs> this time it's going to happen because we have these material wonder and it didn't fucking happen. So in the end, who was really the idealist here? Mm, it's true. It's true. Um, I, I liked what, what Dr. Bones was saying here about Stirner's critique of identity. I think it was far ahead of the game in trying to understand identity, not as something that we're born with or that something that, you know, is natural, but imposed upon us. And therefore we don't necessarily need to identify with or yeah, defend. Let me, let me read a quick uh, quote from your book. Uh, I think this is from the intro. Uh, Stirner's philosophy is a big fuck you to every progressive and liberal viewpoint. It is not expressed in the name of some superior tradition, race, gender, or nationality. Fuck them all. Stirner says, and fuck you too. I don't care about your values, your issues, your cause. I care about me. Only after we learn how to care for ourselves can we begin to care for each other as singular equals and not as generic representatives of groups, classes, identities, and states. This is Stirner's provocation. Uh, So you connect a couple of his provocations against the certain spooks Mm -hmm. like rights and society. Mm -hmm. I guess my question for both of you is, is it wrong for socialists to argue for a right to health care, to free speech? And more generally, uh, how can you be a socialist if society itself is a spook? Uh, let me jump in on this one. Do I got it. this. <clears throat> All right. So let's let's start with a couple of examples of this sort of generalized thinking gone wrong. Uh, in Canada, there's a city called Hamilton. They used their hate symbol laws to declare the anarchist day as a hate symbol. Now, everyone here would assume that that's absolute fucking bullshit. But when we have laws and forces and powers behind these vague general concepts more often than not, they end up escaping their original means and our original desires for them and taking a life of their own. Let's look at gun control, supposedly something to keep the people safe whenever there's a mass shooting. Uh, you're the people. I'm the p- people. What 
what could go everybody benefits well about half of those convicted for gun control violations are black and a quarter hispanic while spree killings are overwhelmingly white offenders uh most of these people that are convicted of gun crimes usually spend more time in prison than your average rapist uh new york city's stop and frisk program which is supposed to keep the whole city safe for the benefit of everybody in 2011 alone, it snared more black men. It snared black men more times than there were black men in the city, and it targeted minorities by a ratio of nine to one. I mean, we talk about human rights, the fight for human rights. Again, what does human rights mean? It's an empty fucking concept that can be twisted and molded to the sheer fact that Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, the same country that beheads people, doesn't allow women to fucking drive, is currently on the UN Human Rights Council. How can we look at any of that? And determine that it means absolutely anything. Sterner's whole point that every time we have these big, empty concepts that we can stretch out over fucking anything, ultimately those concepts will be determined, carried out, and molded by the people in power. Um, you mentioned society. Sterner's whole critique of society is that it's a construct. If you kill every individual that makes up a society, the society vanishes. The individuals <laughs> are what make it. Okay? Sounds like uh, Margaret Thatcher, almost. Well, yeah, uh, I'm going somewhere. Trust, trust the doctor. Okay? Trust, trust the doctor. But that, that, I mean, that is the truth. In Florida, for instance, uh, the ice, the Tequesta, they're all gone. The culture, the society that they formed is gone as well. It doesn't exist after the individual. Sterner's problem with this isn't necessarily that we're creating these groups. His problem is that we put a sacred duty to these things on top of us. In a way, it's, it's kind of like... Uh, Alan Watts has this wonderful quote about the you know, social game and basically how children are born into this world told this is the way things are. This is the way need, things need to be. You can't change this. And his big critique is why the egoist sees these rules and sort of social things going on as one big game. It's something that you and I create just as freely as if we were on a baseball team. Now, the minute that you want us to get the fucking mascot of the baseball team tattooed on my arm, or you tell me that the mascot or the team is something that I have to die for or change my behavior for, we're getting into the realm of the sacred. Uh, in Sterner's book, he uses a great example, like a, a prison. Even right? gritty, though? Even, yes, even so. You have to destroy everything here. Right? All the prisoners in a penitentiary make up a society, but the society is forced on them. They belong to the society. What Sterner's seeking is intercourse between individuals, organic, real relationships that benefit the actual people involved with them, rather than the vague concepts that are usually forced on us by people that want to either confuse or bullshit us. So going back to the bourgeois concept of rights, um, I think this might be a tough pill for some of our listeners to swallow, right? Because there are things that we feel we deserve purely by virtue of being human, like health care, uh, relative amount of freedom, and even a lot of leftists will predicate their ideology and their beliefs um, with sort of a moral rights-based argument. So if the concept of rights is maybe too slippery or maybe too flawed for us to be using to, um, I don't know, argue, spearhead, marshal the troops, justify why we want to take these things and why we think we deserve them like what is a better approach well i, I think it, that's exact it's about taking sterner writes you know uh that the, the ego's answer is to take what you require when we're asking for human rights you are telling the world that i deserve to be treated a certain way and that's great 
if someone fucking listens to you. And unless you have a little bit of power, that doesn't mean shit. It doesn't mean shit. Your rights don't mean shit. Your freedom of the press doesn't mean shit. You can be spied on. No one can fucking stop it. We live in a society that has run rampant with power. And here we are arguing over the letter of the law against a government that has trillions of dollars in black budget projects that you and I will never fucking see. Sterner says as long as you're stuck in this legalist thinking that you're owed anything, you're going to be stuck begging for it. Take what you require. If you're unhappy with your lack of health care, you force the state with, Sterner would argue, violence if necessary to demand it. The revolution, uh, well, almost revolution in France, 1968. That is where the wonderful, quote unquote, socialist human rights that France has came from. They didn't come from building a party. They didn't come from laboring uh, under a legislature or writing their congressman. The people rose up in the streets and threatened to tear down the entire French fucking government until they were so scared, so filled with just naked terror and piss that they gave the people whatever the fuck they wanted to keep them at bay. And And that's what Sterner would want. You should write speeches for Bernie Sanders. I really think (laughs) we could take it all the way. Yeah, I think this idea of rights... um... Uh, yes, it's not just like Sterner says, oh, this is a spook. We can't, you know, it's, therefore it's bad. Or, or this idea is a spook and therefore it's bad or it's a construct and it's bad. The point is, how do we use them? Um, how do we take, how do we use them for our own benefit? So rights, like, like, the, like the great Dr. Bones was saying, are they weren't just found and given to human beings from heaven or government. They were results of struggle. Right, so so rights can be used as tools in a struggle for your own needs and benefits. I don't think uh, anyone from like, uh, I don't think Stern would challenge that, or this framework challenges that. It just, you know, tells us to be cautious in putting all of our uh, beans in the same basket and saying, "Oh, the rights are not going to save us in the end of the day. We're going to have to save ourselves," you know, using any tools we can. Oh yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. but don't you think it could be useful at least when you're trying to bring people from thinking they deserve nothing to thinking they deserve everything? Yeah, this, this is the concept of expropriation, right? Yeah. So Sterner thinks you know that that's that, that's a useful uh, stepping stone, but if if no one if no one's um, if no one's listening to you, or if you don't have the power to force your uh, demands on anyone, then it's just it's just uh, ideology. It's just squabble. So you know, Sterner says you know we should take or expropriate um, the property of others, and property in a big sense that which belongs to us. So he does believe that. You know, things kind of uh, should belong to us in a sense, but only that which we have the power to take. Yeah, in your, in your book, you actually connect this concept of expropriation to squatting. Yeah, you say Sterner interprets property as a form of squatting and justifies it. If property is a relation of power between individuals concerning external things, then the limits of property extend to the limits of one's power to claim and defend something as their own. This understanding of property suggests the same strategy that Marx and Kropotkin all thought were essential. If the poorest class was ever to succeed in regaining its power and dignity, expropriation. So uh, since Dr. Bones is on a roll, um, let, let me ask, uh, you identify as an egoist communist, right? So I, I, I want to ask both what that means and how that's different from uh, the usual uh, uh, anarchist uh, interpretation of Stirner, which is individualist anarchism. Um, I would say that uh, egoist communism is a flag momentarily flown in a world where most people can't afford to pay their bills. The rich are blasting off into space and our bodies are so riddled with disease that now if you're 30 years old, you should be going for your first colonoscopy. 
it acknowledges the absolute domination of the individual by the global capitalist system and understands that markets, currency, and any other shorthands for value end up destroying the individual in the long run, okay? Egoist communism is explicitly saying, hey, capitalism seems to be playing a big part in my life, and I'm really not fucking benefiting it. Maybe currency, private property, and markets were a bad idea. The problem with a lot of individualist anarchists is that often they just seem to sideswipe the economic question. It's, it's one thing to say, like, to advocate your freedom and, you know, talk about the liberation of the individual. And it's like, yeah, that's great. By the way, uh, my job at Target is forcing me to close and then open. This sucks. What's, what's our plan there? And they just usually say fucking nothing. And if they do say anything, it's usually like a mealy-mouthed, you know, pure feces sort of nod to mutualism. And then when you ask them, well, even – even under mutualism, even if we have a worker-owned McDonald's, I'm still stuck in my economic taste as a worker. I'm treated a little better, but I'm still a worker. Shouldn't we eliminate that as well? They usually just kind of walk away. So I, I think that Sterner even talks about in his book how he's not against socialism. He's against sacred socialism. And in Sterner's critics, he devotes multiple paragraphs talking about, hey, we tried free competition turns out, hey, it's not actually free. Whoever makes the fucking rules gets to determine all the rules for competition. Now it's time to try something different. And so now, especially on a planet so fucked and our lives so fucked, the egoist critique luckily is finally turning its head onto the economic arrangement and deciding that it needs to be destroyed. Yeah, I think uh, like, like, like the great doctor was saying, uh, the egoist communist position is, you know, it starts from what do we, uh, you know, starts from the individual, from the I. What do, what do I enjoy? What do I need? And it results um, in a uh, in an understanding in which what I enjoy and what I need is other people, other people. I need other people to actually be who I am, maybe. So maybe I need to come together with other people to take back what has been taken from me. Um, so that's where the the starting with the I can get you to the we. Um, that's that's a very optimistic view of human nature, and I think that's <laughs> yeah. something that unites many of us on the left and separates us from other political philosophies. Maybe that we, even if I don't necessarily believe that humans are naturally good, but I think we have the potential to be. And if we set up society in such a way that it is mutually reinforcing and it makes sense to behave that way, of course we're going to. Uh, I'm not as much of an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think uh, human, I don't think there will ever be an era where groups of human beings aren't violently seeking to kill one another. I don't think there's ever going to, I think that diversification and complexity are an intrinsic part of the universe and that whatever, quote-unquote societies or groups we seek to function, they will inevitably climb towards entropy and that our own children will eventually have to rebel against our social order and destroy us. So rather than hope for the goodness of people awesome. to come out, I'd rather set up a system that allows for the greatest amount of mutation while preserving the largest amount of individual freedom. Well, if people are always going to kill each other, though, doesn't that sound a little bit dangerous to just have uh, full anarchy all the time? 
Well, I mean, I am an anarchist, so I mean, I guess it all depends. <laughs> I mean, I mean, everybody's armed down here anyway. I mean, you, you all live guns. where. Pe- yeah. Do you guys not have guns where you walk around? Is that is that not a thing? G- guns are people? very, very, very difficult to get in New York City. Yeah, wow, that would, fucking sucks. We would never yeah. tell our listeners to stock up on guns. No, I will tell them. I will tell them to buy guns. Go <laughs> ahead and buy you. guns, folks. It's great. Guns are fantastic. I love them. Come on down to the south. You could. Pr- I bought a, a gun in a Walmart parking lot. It's totally awesome. Come on down. And we have a right to bear arms we got well no we've forced that right and basically the united states government is so afraid of making any move against gun owners in the country in the hopes that they don't spark some kind of wanton killing fest that they won't do anything about it as a doctor i would definitely (laughs) prescribe arming yourself to the teeth thanks thanks doc that's why he came already (laughs) oh my god wait is that the fbi oh fuck okay (laughs) so i gotta go this is purely a satirical program i just want to remind Uh, everybody that if anyone in the fbi is listening okay proceed just back to this question about optimism and uh you know are we naturally good or evil i mean usually the 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 conservative position starts with this war of all against all i mean it could also be a left-wing position and um and that we can never be, uh, we can never, you know, have a peaceful society. That's why we need something like rule and law and order to manage the violence. That's kind of the conservative position. I think Sterner's position is a bit different. We don't start just as individuals. Actually, we start in um, in these social relations that are forms of power over us, and we need to separate ourselves. We need to subtract ourselves from these forces and become individuals in a sense. And only then can we start to reconstitute as groups, as classes, as associations, as unions, as a commune. I think the commune is really the end goal here. Um, but it's a commune of what? You know, what, what constitutes the commune? Is it us as workers, as men, as women, as, as Jews, as Protestants, as Gentiles? As, and it's a certain sense, no. You know, it's, it's, it's beyond that, right? It's, it's us as who we want, how we want to be seen by each other. So it seems like uh, with the two radically different visions that we have between uh, the the two doctors here, uh, that Stirner can be interpreted in a number of different ways. And of course, uh, like I mentioned before, there's egoist communism, individualist anarchism, but he's also taken up by anarcho-capitalists, by he's taken up by fascists, um, uh. and uh, and Doctor Bones. I, I know in the past you've. Um, argued that these are incorrect interpretations of Stirner, but in uh, Dr. Blumenfeld's book, he lists over a dozen different Stirners, uh, different, uh, in the same book, he says you can find different Stirners, and one of them is actually a post-structuralist Stirner, uh, emphasizing the experimental nature of the ego in its own. Uh, so, Dr. Bones, do you think there is an incorrect way to read Stirner, or do you think you uh, you found a an appropriate reading oh well i mean who the fuck am i to say i found an appropriate reading i mean ultimately aren't we dealing with sort of wetware in our heads that will rationalize anything i mean if you go into any text desiring something um front loaded with something you want to find uh, the whole number 23 phenomenon keep looking for it and it will fucking be anywhere so i mean if you're some weird fascist that's you know in the middle of beating his dick to evola and all of a sudden you look at sterner and you're like wow he talks a lot about violence boom throw him in the cannon hell yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we're all but then those people again they don't seem to actually bother to read the whole fucking book the majority of people i've met that grossly misinterpret sterner never read the fucking book and sadly a large part of anarchists are in that field because you know there's a large wing of egoists that you know 
just got super high on Wolfie back in the 90s and they got a whole bunch of like, oh yeah, spooks. Yeah, the individual. All right. Oh, whoa, socialism? Nah, I'm a free individual, man. And you know, they just got those. Yeah. So meanwhile, the whole back part of Sterner's book is literally devoted to the union of egoists, which is his idea of how people are supposed to come Mm -hmm. together. And again, yeah, the second book, he's saying, I am totally in favor. Socialism's fine with me, just as long as it's not sacred. They don't bother to fucking read it so i'm people are going to look for anything they want it's a text sterner's dead you could literally twist him and say whoever look at china for fuck's sake i mean like these people were talking about what now and now we've got suicide nets around factories ideas ultimately and sterner's whole point don't fucking matter because they're going to be twisted turned molded deformed and what to whatever people want they're going to be shaped and used to hit people with the question is if you believe in those things if you think they're sacred or not read sterner however the hell you want but if you get any idea that somehow working for your boss is in your self-interest or that being a white dude is somehow special which again also sterner critiques this whole idea of germanness he even says how ridiculous is it that one person would you know happily clasp another's just because he's german you're reading it just completely off the wall and at that point i would probably lay off the bath salts nice so uh, do you give that recommendation to us as well in our compound? Should we lay off the bath salts up there? I mean, it de- now, hold on. Are we mix? It depends on what you mix it with. If you can still uh, get rifles. salvia. Oh, salvia. Okay, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> salvia guns and bath salts. Now we're talking Maybe about a little rosemary <laughs> oil. <laughs> rosemary oil. Had the uh, best bath ever. Yeah, there you go. And some vegan cookies too. Why not? I mean, yeah, sure. Hell Rose yeah. bath salts. So I am a. Uh, anarcho-communist or something close to it but i am also an anarcho-communist or something close to it who likes to get things done oh shit and i still want to know because because when you're selling people on a new vision of society it really needs to be something more appealing than what we have now and i think most people i don't know most people listening to this probably have you know they work for boss they're exploited they're angry but a relative degree of comfort and safety Right, we have refrigerators. We have the things we need. Not um, for long. <laughs> how? How? If, if human nature is violent and scary, like how do you propose to set up this future society in a way that encourages peace and cooperation? Well, let me just jump in here quickly and say, for Sterner, there there is no human nature. Exactly. There is no such thing. I mean, human nature is what we make it to be. If if we're violent and scary to each other. That's the product of our historical conditions right now. Um, it could it could last in the future. It could not last in the future. So there's no essence there that makes us uh, who we want to be. It's not really a, um, such a new point anymore. But at Sterner's time, it was because the idea of humanity started to get more and more popular in the 1840s and 1830s. It became the new shibboleth of uh, of the state. Even you know we're doing this for the sake of the human or in the critics too. We need to defend the human being. But they smuggle in all their preconceptions into their idea of what it means to be human, good or bad. So that's just a kind of a side note there to your question. Well, I was kind of addressing something that Dr. Bones said earlier. Yeah, then let him respond to it. Oh, I got this. So here's my thing. Sterner isn't giving people a picture of this future world. He does not, in his book, in any way, shape, or form, presuppose like, hey, and this is how it'll look when we all get this... I'm not either. I don't think there is some future utopian world that we can strive for. What I'm focused on are real, present, 
projects that we can focus on that get us free. Programs like uh, I think the Black Panthers were a great example of this rather than waiting for some, you know, historical uh, uh, happening that the the workers were going to be free. They went out, they did food programs, they ran ambulances when ambulances wouldn't come into their neighborhoods rather than wait for the state to recognize their quote unquote human rights. They followed the cops with shotguns in their car and they said, look, if you cause problems here, you're going to fucking have problems. The egoist mindset is tackling all of that as it is. And one of the things also that Sterner has this big critique of, and one that I think the des- the left desperately needs, is that exactly as how uh, <clears throat> the good doctor here was talking about human nature, the left has this religious idea that humanity is inherently liberatory, that human beings want to be free. And Sterner says in a- large areas, sometimes the poor are responsible for their own enslavement. Now, I live in the South. I can stare out at the working class and I can watch these people literally worship the ground the wealthy walk on, seek the death and torture of their fellow working class members just because of the color of their skin. These people consistently work against any liberatory project because they believe it to be in their self-interests. Now, we can argue whether the human species is deluded, confused, possibly ignorant, but Sterner does not look out on the world and say, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. And the minute we lose that, the minute we get rid of this fantasy that everything is going to be fixed or that good times are just around the fucking corner, then we can start building the project and say, well, how can you me and our loved ones start getting free? What can we do in a world that promises us nothing? Sounds like you're talking about false consciousness a little bit there, right? I mean, false consciousness sort of pre- presupposes the idea that the true consciousness is the liberatory one, which, again, I don't see anything that says people necessarily, absolutely desire their own liberation all the time. Perfectly. Okay, let me give you a nice historical example of this. If we've got the time. Florida, Civil War. Uh, Florida was the breadbasket of the Confederacy. The Confederacy was literally pulling every chicken, hog, and cow out of Florida. Soldiers were deserting the Confederacy en masse because their families were writing home saying that they were starving. At one point, towards the end of the Civil War, four different armies of deserters were roaming across the Florida Peninsula, attacking Confederate caravans and stealing back their supplies. Immediately following the end of the war, after literally fighting and killing Confederate soldiers, these same workers gleefully signed right back up with the racial system of terror, fell right behind the aristocrats, and took joy in the fact that even though they had nothing, they still had a little bit of a hierarchy above the free blacks in their community. That momentary liberation... That momentary desire to free themselves from a feudal society did not extend naturally or by itself to their fellow compatriots and fellow poor people fighting against the planters. We see this in history again and again. And so my point is, just because we want to be free, just because we think that human beings deserve to be free, doesn't mean shit unless you have the power to make it so. And if we're going to sit around and wait for the entire species to come around to some grand idea, which, mind you, talk about Christian thinking, that somehow the entire species is going to be won over to one form of political ideology. Uh, Truly, that would be a first in known history. Rather than wait on that, we start now, we start building, and we start getting ourselves free. I guess I'm still trying to get my mind around quite exactly where you're coming from here, because, like, 
I know that there are liberals, for example, who say, you know, white working class Trump supporters, they're voting against their own interests. Like, we know what their best interests are. They don't. It's our job to either convince them or to just keep them from having power over other people. Like, how is this different from that? Because the, the, the egoist is attempting instead building their own power to where those who look, I'm all for arguing to the working class. I'm all for lifting up as many people as possible. I just don't look at it as something that's absolutely going to happen. And I also don't look at my own liberation as being completely dependent upon them. I'm 100 percent in people building strong communities of equality and friendship devoid of capitalist and racial terror. And I don't think that the people that live under those systems and desire this new life should have to wait around for the entire country to come around. Dr. Bones, um, is it then, since uh, you're down south, was it you that wrote the um, Florida Communist Front piece on the protracted people war in the Everglades? Was that you that uh, wrote that talk? Are you John Horst II? Uh, well, I, I will say this, that uh, it's definitely not me, because normally when I enter a room, Maoists usually break out in hives. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but yeah, they are, uh, yeah. No. Well, I the, think the Maoists are actually having some grief over that piece, so uh, maybe mission accomplished. Uh, Papa bless. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, you want to jump Yeah, in? I just want to say, I think Jamie points to um, you know, a serious question, is how far can you go without a positive vision of the future? Uh, you know, the the Dr. Bones here is, is saying, you know, Sterner's position is really about building the power that we see in the present in our forms of unions or communes and expanding those. It's it's kind of in line with Tikkun uh, and, you know, this kind of more autonomous um, extra parliamentary left position in Europe. Um, but you're expanding these communes, you're expanding this power from the state, from capital towards what? Right. What's what's that? Where's that going? What's the horizon? Sterner really doesn't flesh that out. Um, and that's why, you know, some people can use him in different ways um, without a positive vision. Marx actually didn't really give much of a positive vision of uh, socialism either. But he said really you know, what it can't be. Um, you know, may- maybe maybe that's that's as far as we can get with this framework. We know what what liberation can't look like. You know, it can't look like this, this forms of domination over ourselves and other people in which we we beg for more slavery from our masters. It can't look like that. Um, it can't be based on some superficial identities that we come together on, um, but which change every minute. It has to be based on our real self-interest. Um, but beyond that, that's that's for us us up to decide ourselves. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm always looking for things that are actionable, yeah. right, and things that are. We, we always try to ground it in the present and what people can do here. So maybe I, that, that should be the final, uh, unless you have more. I would say questions. on that, Jamie, that I think that um, if anything, Dr. Bones has given us uh, a lot of actionable material because I think that uh, if nothing else that he's gotten, out, gotten from Sterner uh, is this conception that we can't wait and that um, you know self-activity and organizing, whatever that might look like, whatever the horrors that may bring, is something that must happen in the present at this moment uh, by as many people as possible in order to change this horrific fucking world we live in. 100%, yeah. More uh, mutual aid disaster relief, more socialist gun clubs, and more people seizing land. Boom. Okay, I'm appropriation. Gonna, yeah, I'll just wrap it up. Uh, say that if you are interested in understanding Sterner, I think this book, uh, it's the best thing I've read for, you know, breaking down what, what Sterner was all about and Thank comparing you. him to, you know, other philosophers and political thinkers and a lot about how it relates to Marx today. Um, 
So that's All Things Are Nothing to Me by Dr. Jacob Blumenfeld. Go get it. Take it for yourself. <laughs> Make with it what you... As Sterner says, your thoughts are my thoughts. Violate them as you will. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Bones is a writer for The Conjure House, Gods and Radicals, and he's got a podcast called The Guillotine. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to plug, Dr. Bones? Uh, Alex Jones has officially pissed himself about the guillotine. So yes. if you want yes. to listen to something that uh, terrifies the ever-living yes. piss out of you know, the oh guidance. God. Do you want to tell that story? Oh, oh well, <clears throat> it was, uh, we got picked up. Uh, a couple of tweets I made got picked up by Far Left Watch, which get, got picked up by PJ Media, which made it to PragerU. And then on the sewers of the far-right circuit, Alex Jones and his lizard alien self wandered on up. You know, got us on the show. I am disappointed. I am disappointed in the fact that Alex Jones did not mention that I'm an occultist and that I advocate literally summoning demons against your boss. And should have been easy. Yeah, you would think. This is right in uh, his wheelhouse. Yeah, every episode we mention specifically collecting money to hire a helicopter, fly it over Texas, and to find him and dump 50 gallons of pure human shit on top of him and he missed that he doesn't he doesn't like it when he's not the one coming up with it hey you know uh, we we put him center stage right in the middle there we want to dump shit on him i'm helping the texas economy by hiring that helicopter you know a lot of a lot of people have been whispering in the left that we need a revolutionary alex jones and i I think i'm talking to him right now well you know i mean i didn't do this podcast nude for nothing so i mean (laughs) I also want to plug the guillotine is with uh, Brett from Rev Left Radio and Rev Left Radio recently. Uh, Brett recently quit his job and is doing Rev Left full time. There's going to be spinoff podcasts, yes. including one about magic called yes. uh, Black Hell Banner yes. Magic. Hell yeah. I was on one of the early episodes that should be up this week. And Woo! there's also all kinds of new bonuses and stuff on Brett's Patreon. So listen to his big announcement episode uh, where he also talks about Joe Rogan. And, uh, yeah, get involved in the the rev left happening. Hell yes. Greetings to all you Antifada super soldiers out there. I know we talk a big game about abolishing the value form on the show, but here in the short term, our show relies on your support. So if you like what you've been hearing and want to help us continue to make more exciting episodes of the Antifada, you can go to patreon.com slash the Antifada contribute whatever you see fit and as a way of saying thank you we have some nice bonus content for our patrons like sean's new history and theory series history is a weapon as well as our wonderful discord community shout out to all of our discord peeps and this just in for patrons only we have just released the first and possibly only ever episode of our cooking show acid kitchen wherein we demonstrate the optimal pizza-making technique for your psycho-culinary delight. Now, it's, uh, it's funny because uh, when you have a podcast, you get a chance to meet a lot of new friends. We've uh, met a lot of great smart folks uh, in the course of our podcast, but you also have the opportunity to bring along some old friends, and in terms of uh, smart old friends, none are smarter and older than uh, Jacob Blumenfeld, uh, who we've known for many, many years. So we are super, super hyped to have him on the podcast today, even though the celebration for his doctoral thesis defense last night might have put a dent in our uh, podcasting abilities today. Uh. 
We're fine. Everything's great. We yeah. just had omelets. Uh, we probably did all the shots last night, I think. I think we did all the shots. Oh, I still I still taste the whiskey in my mouth. Yeah, she I still sh- taste the whippets in my windpipe. <laughs> Thanks, Virgil. <laughs> <laughs> what happened when that Proud Boy showed up, though? That is, it's funny you should ask. <laughs> um, do you know that, did we tell you this already, Andy? People thought our friend was a Proud Boy because he's wearing a Fred Perry. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I explained to Matt the, that the Fred Perry itself has been culturally appropriated by the Proud Boys and by the right, and that it actually has a long, long history of actually, you know, anti-racist resistance type people wearing it too. And uh, also they wear the, what, yellow and yellow and black ones, right? And Johnny was wearing like a uh, black and red one. Yeah. Red and black, baby, are our two favorite colors. But some sharps also wear the, the yellow and black. So don't, don't assume just because someone... Yeah is a skinhead wearing that, that they're a proud boy, but they could be. Do not beat them up. And uh, if it's Johnny, you could try, but you probably won't Yeah, just succeed. don't try fighting skinheads unless <laughs> yeah. you really know what you're doing and you really want to. Yeah. Good rule of thumb in general. You know, I, used to, I used to go to ska concerts back in the 90s. And, uh, Who didn't? When I was like you know, 16, I loved ska music. And there was like skinheads there, and I never saw skinheads. I was like a little Jewish boy. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to eat me. <laughs> but then they had this like rash and sharp tattoos on them, you uh, know, yeah. ra- like red, uh, races against skins. Red, red, and anar- skins. red and anarchist skinheads red and, anarchist and uh, skinhead. sharp or skinheads against racial prejudice. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool for the first time to meet like anti-racist skinheads who didn't want to, you know, chop me up Hell yeah. um, at a ska show and like Turn skank you with into them. a lampshade. What I like about the skinheads who go to ska shows is they, there's like a little crew of them, usually like three or four. And they all wear exactly the same <laughs> mm-hmm. color, Fred Perry or Ben Sherman, the same jeans or the same, and the same boots with the same color laces. So they're just such good friends. They all dress exactly <laughs> alike. Like, I've like, never had a friend that good. I know. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you've, ne- you've never done twinsies? I guess that's more of a girl thing. Don't you usually like, uh, when before you go out, you ask your friends what they're wearing so you don't mm-hmm. wear the same things as that? Yeah. Well, now you do, but in like second grade, you know, that was something that I would do with my best friends sometimes. We would dress up like twins and it was fun for us. So mm-hmm. maybe that's what they're doing now. So, so you're telling us, Jamie, you were a second mm-hmm. grade skinhead? You were a skinhead. I guess so. I didn't even realize. It would look really hot with a Chelsea cut, I gotta say. <laughs> it's a good look. It's a great look. Uh, so, yeah. Um, usually we ask our guest at the Antifada how pure their hate is today, but I feel like, Jacob, like we don't even need to ask. Oh, you can ask. All right. All right. Um, just, you know, for anyone who might not know, which is, you know, probably most people listening because they don't know you, Jacob, how pure is your hate today? It's very impure, actually. <gasps> it's very what? dirty. The it's plot very, turns. it's very mixed. Mm. It's, uh, you know, you can't even say the word purity in Germany. You really? can't even say Reinheit. Really? No, you can't. But, okay. <laughs> but it's not. It's not this like pure Aryan hate, man. It's like mixed and Semitic and just like uh, all gooey inside. I'm sorry. It's like it's not as you know. Is there I, hate to mongrel? I'm more of a mongrel kind of hate. I, I mean, I wasn't that hating, and then I walked over here on the Brooklyn Bridge to get here, and I just what? saw so many fucking selfie sticks. Uh, that, that just oh my, what kind of human being has a selfie stick? You forgot about the Brooklyn Bridge. I, I didn't know that. I've been here so long. You've been gone for wait, what six I, years? Wait, now? Yeah. Have you yeah. been gone for so long that selfie sticks were not invented? They were yet not the invented when I last was here. Oh, oh my damn. god, they are an extension of civilization, objectified <laughs> as a violent force. <laughs> I mean, I just never felt that much it's impurity. Wow. You oh. felt yourself turning into Zizhe. Oh yeah. my god, I couldn't. <laughs> ugh, I, I just want to grab it and just. 
Do they not use selfie sticks in uh, Germany? I don't see them. I yeah, they're well, probably outlawed. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure they have them. Well, I know it's like such a stupid complaint, but when you see them for the first time, it's a shock. Yeah. Shock yeah. to the system. Well, I'm glad something really got your hate yeah, pure really, really out of that uh, mongrel mud, oh. mud race uh, hatred you had before. We've introduced Jacob to so many things. I was just thinking Have about we? that. Yeah. He would always ask me, like, Jamie, what's big on the internet right now? <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that. And I would tell him I would tell him <laughs> about so the delightful funny. things on the internet. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Like back in L.A. Oh. Maybe we'll do some more of that today. Well, it's funny how, like, uh, you know, we all met one another around these same times when, uh, let's say, the, the contradictions were very heightened and uh, we were all getting into a lot of trouble. And uh, you were very much grounded and aware and knowledgeable of things happening IRL. But you had to turn to somebody like Jamie to understand, you know, early memes and, and yeah. things of this sort. So you really had your head to the ground. And now is it a bit more in the clouds? Would yeah, you say? now it's a bit more in the clouds. Now yeah. I'm a bit more filtered through the, the media networks. I don't need Jamie as my guide anymore. But it's true. Sorry, I, babe. We were, okay. we were like, you know, doing a lot Life of things in the world back then, going to jail a lot and yes. causing a lot of ruckus. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what was happening in the media sphere. So I'd be like, Jamie, what's, what's the latest meme? And, you know, she'd, she'd tell me a story. She'd give me an update. And I told him about Maru. Oh, my God. So many things. Yeah. Maru the cat. Some other famous I cats. Remember, mostly cats. Mostly famous cats. Yeah. Um, since all of our wild times, uh, your wild times in many countries across the uh, globe yeah. and in the United States, you have since moved to Deutschland, to Germany. Yeah. Um, you've become an expat. Can you tell us a bit about what uh, life is like over there in uh, Berlin? Uh, life is great. I mean, it's uh, let's see. I used to, I lived here for a while, and I worked like three jobs. I was teaching, I was tutoring, I was doing some other jobs, and I was just trying to make rent. Um, and I just had no time for anything else. Uh, Berlin, the maybe Europe in general, the quality of life is uh, nice because you can work less and have more time to enjoy your company of friends. And it's just something that I think we all forget is important to have that time freed up. Um, the time that's dominated usually by our need to pay rent. So when the rent's lowered, you can do that. You can do that stuff. Um, you could. There's a lot of. There's parks everywhere. There's playgrounds everywhere. Uh, healthcare is taken care of. You have to pay, but not so much a month. You can just buy drugs in the park. You, yeah, you go to any park you want. They just like offer you drugs. You know, walking by. What's I really want to do works? over on Berlin actually, because the summer that we spent there. I was working my American schedule, writing like seven fucking blog posts a that. day, and the time difference was such that I couldn't even start to like 1 p.m., so I was just working from like 1 to like 10 every day, and it fucking sucked, and that's normal in fucking New York, but in Berlin, like, people feel so bad for you if yeah. you have to work that much. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I remember I went to a show at that place, White Trash Fast Food, is that still there? Still there in Mitte, cool. yeah. where they have like punk shows or whatever. And Sean has reminded me to use my NPR voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sitting down in the back because I was very tired, and it was only like a Wednesday or something. But this German guy just comes up to me with a look of utter sympathy in his eyes. He's like, "Oh, did you work today? <laughs> like, did you yes, do Arbeit? It's fucking Wednesday." <laughs> But like I did, I did it wrong. Yeah, I worked at a bar for a couple of years. I worked one or two days a week maximum. I remember and on Schoenfeld, right? Schoenestrasse. Uh, Schoenestrasse. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I worked at this bar for a while, and that that paid my rent and most of my income for for a couple of years. Now I'm a translator. 
Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's another interesting thing, too, is that, um, you know, people are very conflicted, our audience, and I think even us, about the conception of there being like an actual left party. Mm -hmm. But there is uh, Die Linke, mm -hmm. which is the left mm -hmm. uh, over in Germany. And one of the very interesting institutions they have is the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, Stiftung yeah. Foundation. Foundation, essentially. And so... There's a lot of leftists that I know, and you're one of them, right, who kind of can make their bones off of the kind of, like, suckling on the teat of uh, Dolinka yeah. and the if, money they provide. If you're an official party in government, then you have automatically funds to set up a foundation in which to promote research for your party. But it doesn't – I mean, it's not necessarily connected to your party. It's just mm. research on similar topics. So every party has a foundation uh, with funding for PhDs, postdocs, translations, events, whatever they want. And the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung um, really spreads that wealth around a bit. So, yeah, I get paid to do translations of, uh, of – I do Marxist uh, texts. Um, I translate for the Marxist Dictionary. Oh, cool. My last article was on um, domestic labor. It uh, should be coming out next year. It's on the domestic labor dispute. You know, what's the Marxist position on Ooh, housework? Social reproduction. Yeah, and, uh, you know, what did, what, what did Marx and Engels think about it? What did Luxembourg, Kolontai, how did, what did Lenin think about it? Mm. Um, you know, they all had strong uh, ideas of the distribution, the, the equal distribution of housework as an essential part of any revolution. But that's super interesting. Yeah. So that's just, that's just, and some that's stuff just I how do. you make your living. That's just how I make my, yeah, that's yeah, that, how, that's, that's pretty good. So what, um, what's this political party all about? Oh, that's, I don't know if I could talk about Die Linke that much. Die Linke... It, weren't they, uh, as I understand it, they were a combination of the old uh, East, GDR, the East the East German Communist Party, combined so, with some newer sort yeah. of left formations, is that yeah. right? They're, they're, they're a synthesis of two old parties, from the, one, from, one from the East and one from the, the West, and they tried to combine together so there can be um, a left beyond the Social Democratic Party, because the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, is um, more uh, centrist. I mean, they've been in government for a while or, or in coalition with the government. Um, so there's no real left opposition to them except Die Linke. Um, and Die Linke is trying to be more populist -y in these days. They want to take the energy of Corbyn or, or uh, Mélenchon. And, um, but they're very divided on how to do that because to get those votes, they might need to appeal to those, work, to those, uh, to those working class voters who uh, resent the recent wave of refugees. Mm -hmm. So this Die Linke... Um, strategy is you know maybe we should say okay we maybe we do need to close some borders yeah. so and not all of them are saying that but they haven't really found out a way to overcome this dilemma of how do you win back those votes that have gone sure. to the far right right based around the con based around the uh, uh um, hatred towards migrants and actually that that brings me to another interesting question just in terms of what's happening in germany uh I know Berlin is a bit of a bubble itself. I've spent some time there. Um, you, do you see alternative for Deutschland stuff anywhere where you are? I know outside the city there would be this sort of uh, proto-fascist AFD sort of uh, uh, presence in the streets and propaganda and stuff. But have you seen any of that where you are? They do, um, they do protests and they do demonstrations in Berlin once in a while. Mm. But as you can imagine, I mean, they do a demonstration. There's maybe a hundred of them. And I don't know if they come from the city or from outside. There's probably 500 cops surrounding them. And then there's 10,000 mm, yeah. uh, people protesting them. You know, most, a lot of in black. And you call a demonstration, a leftist demonstration in Berlin, you'll get 10,000 people there. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard you talk about it. And I've seen pictures of just even the May Day they have over it's in insane. Berlin. And it's yeah. what, hundreds of thousands of people, right? Yeah, it's it's insane. But it's almost a bit ritualistic. Mm. So it's almost a performance of activity. It's not, there hasn't been a... Uh, social movement really in Germany like there has been in Greece, Spain um, or France in the last decade. Uh, it's weathered the crisis pretty well. 
un, uh, employment's high, although it's low-paid jobs. So you haven't seen the so- social uprising at all. You have these ritualistic actions um, that come and go, um, hmm. but there's no real motivation to take things any farther. Mm. That kind of brings me back to an idea that we've been batting around a bit here and also on the majority report from time to time, which is the, the idea that um, the kind of social democratic welfare state that you enjoy in Germany as a springboard to further radicalization and class struggle. The idea being that when the boot lifts a little bit off of people's necks, that's when they have the space and the time and the position of strength to fight for socialism, for full socialism. I think that's that's pretty true. I mean, because things like daycare are taken care of, you know, mothers have time to do other things. Um, people, because there's some limited rent control, um, they don't need to work as much to pay those bills. So, But with this free time doesn't mean people necessarily organize. Mm. You know, maybe people just want to enjoy their lives a bit better, and that's also fine. Um, but, yeah, the, the potential is there for defending those gains slowly and slowly. And the welfare state, you know, it wasn't just imposed on people. It was, mm. a, vic- it was a result of a struggle, um, which becomes then gifted back to the people as if it's the present of the, of the government. Um, but, yeah. But then there's the idea that people could get complacent as well and that, you know, maybe people fight better from a position of desperation, uh. which I guess is sort of an accelerationist argument that I don't necessarily endorse. Uh, Let's put it this way. So the big struggle in in Europe has been between uh, essentially Germany to a lesser extent, uh, extent France as sort of the core of the EU, right? Representing the power. Uh, You saw massive, massive social struggles in Greece uh, since the crisis and then up until Syriza wins and uh, kind of throws in the towel. Um, Is it suffice to say is is, uh, Greece, comparing Greece and Germany is comparing um, two countries that have this sort of left and social democratic position, but are historically in very, very different moments right now in terms of the political economy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason why so many people went out into the streets in Greece is because what they thought was taken for granted no longer was. Mm. You know, because of the financial institutions, they wanted to basically bail out the banks and uh, impose the, con- the constraints of the Eurozone onto Greece, no matter what happened to the people. I mean, they didn't give a shit. So people just lost what was taken for granted, you know, a, a certain um, cost of goods, a cost of living, a cost of healthcare, public uh, access was just gone over like slowly. Public employment, right? Yeah, public employment just shattered. So if that happened in Germany too, people would also go out on the streets, mm. I would assume, because you have these expectations that this is what we're owed, what we're demanded. In the US, United States, I don't think that's the case. People yeah. don't expect... Um, you know, to have a good life, have a good quality of life. That's something that you need to do on your own as an individual. Right. In Germany, in the labor movement, they're still pushing forward, asking for, you know, more free time just for yeah, mit- shorter working Yeah, the metal week. union, right? Uh, the I- metal Iggy Metal. Yeah. yeah, Iggy Metal managed to win, what was it, a 30-hour work week? Was 35. It? 35, yeah. yeah. Well, just that's recently, the concept though. of rights could be useful, right? When you're looking at people like, I am the 53%, you know, I don't get shit. Therefore, nobody deserves shit. Right. We deserve nothing, and we will like it. Like that's so depressing. That's yeah. uh, that actually brings me to a very. I think uh, if you can manage manage to uh, abstract away your uh, Southern Californian upbringing okay. and fully situate yourself in German society, because you yeah. do you know live there now. Mm-hmm. That is your place. You have a family there. Congratulations mm-hmm. on Thank your you. the birth of your child. Um, what do you think the 
average German, and that's very hard to say, but the Germans that you've spoken to or you know looked at and seen in the media, what do they think of this ongoing political legitimation crisis and um, just economic fuckery that's happening uh, in the United States right now? Well, how do how do Germans view Trump and Trumpism and uh, the failures of a liberal center and the rise of some sort of left populism, but the rise of some really scary xenophobic right populism? I mean, at first, Germans just thought it was a joke, that this was just insane. Whatever America's going through is it's an absurd representation of its decline. And we are so far beyond this because you know, our political spectrum is much broader. It's based on coalitions and consensus. There's a, always a large consensus in government. So, Occupy, so, twinkle fingers. <laughs> yeah. So you don't really go beyond the political mainstream. Um, and yet, in the last years, because of the rise of pop, right populism in Europe, the People are looking at Trump more more seriously as, okay, is that maybe a symptom of a global crisis of legitimacy of political institutions? Maybe. Can that actually happen here, given our different conditions? Because maybe we live under a similar system of capitalism. So I think the, the focus on America as kind of exceptional is no longer the case. Mm. It's now not exceptional what's happening here. It's part of a trend. Mm. And that trend is spreading. And you see that again with uh, AFD, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, AFD... They they try to present themselves as like intellectual and moderate and just you know raising these questions, <laughs> just but, asking questions. And, and I, I think that's how they're covered here. Like they're uh, they're like an extreme right Eurosceptic party, but as far as I can tell, they're actually Nazis. Like uh, a lot of them seem to actually be and NDP people who are yeah. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot undercover. of neo Nazis in the in the AFD, and they go to their events and they say Sieg Heil, and they you know they say you know kill the Muslims and kill the Jews. And, Is that even allowed in Germany? Um, no. So they have to cover it in certain ways. Hmm. They have secret ways of doing an it. upside down yeah. Sieg yeah. Heil yeah. thing or yeah. something. Yeah, they have to they have to you know rearrange a letter or two, hmm. or they change the swastika around and. But at the same, but you can say like here. you're proud of you, yeah. At the same time, uh, Bannon was you know traveling around Europe trying to get this coalition together, the movement. Uh, he seemed to be having a lot of luck with Boris Johnson and Liga Nord, but AFD rebuffed him. They were like, you know, we're a different kind of situation here. So um, it's definitely AFD seems to be like the second largest party now in Germany. Uh, is that does that indicate to you that people are interested again in a sort of national socialist turn, or are people just ignorant about what this party is really about, or is it just a different phenomenon than like Liga Nord or? Uh, or Swedish Democrats. Or, or Le Pen or something. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's a bit different because Germany's particular history as being a divided country. So AFD has a lot of support in the East, which is the more deindustrialized zone, the more um, uh, zone of more higher unemployment. And, and the, but the intellectual, so the voting base comes from the East, but the intellectuals are from the West. And the intellectuals are these Eurosceptics, you know, the skeptical of the EU, which is, you know, can also be a left phenomenon. And, uh, and they're trying to be mainstream. They want to get mainstream. They want to get into government. They actually kicked out another leader of the AFD for being too radical, too wing nutty. Um, they really want to, um, you know, pursue their policies. And yet they have this base um, that really is just centered around hating migrants. Or mm. They think migrants are taking their jobs and, and Islamicizing education. You know, their new the AFD new poster is like, keep Islam out of schools. Wow. That's and, like... So they're trying to combine both. And I think that's happens here also with Trump and the base. You know, you have these contradictory tendencies, this pro-business uh, model on the one hand and this uh, like almost pro-migrant business model and this anti-migrant working mm -hmm. model. And they somehow come together in a shared uh, 
political framework because one's useful for the other. Mm. Right. Well, that's like classic fascist political formation, right? Combining the sort of nebulous populist energy that could go left or right uh, with an economically right-wing vision and sort of shifting what could have been economic populism into a kind of cultural populism that's very flexible, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very flexible. But there's also, when, when fascism really comes to power, there's like a revolutionary edge to it where people are really ready to expel this abstraction, whatever it is. And I think you see that in the Trump movement where people are really just saying, I don't care about how the, the government works anymore or the principles of the United States or yeah. the Constitution or anything. I just want to get rid of these Muslims right. and undocumented people. They're letting the state do that. Mm. Like they're, n- they're not taking action themselves. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if in, in Germany uh, with the, the recent, what do you call it, riot in, in Chemnitz? Yeah. Like, and, the, are, and the killings by those neo-Nazis, right? Didn't they kill a bunch of people and get away with it for a long time? Oh, that's, a, that's another thing. That's a long yeah. scandal. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess my, my question is, does there seem to be more of a revolutionary tension there? Yeah, fascism is a mass movement, as Adorno said. You know, it, it comes from below. It doesn't necessarily come from, from the top. Um, it's, that's why their, their fear of, of, of crowds, <laughs> these like post-German intellectual thinkers who, you know, they did not like protests because they saw the fascist impulse, even in protests. Mm. Um, and you could see, you know, in Chemnitz, these were, ma- these were mass movements of people chasing migrants in the street, chanting, you know, make Germany proud again. Yeah, I guess. Mm. But it's so far limited to these small towns in the East. You know, like I said before, mainstream German politics is very tame and consensus-oriented and coalition-based. So it's hard to have this, or it, people thought it would be impossible for such a party to come to power, mm. right? That's so outside the pale. Who knows? I mean, it's slowly creeping in everywhere. The fascist creeps. It does creep in. What, do are people starting to reckon with, um, let's say, historical resonance of a uh, far right anti other party uh, arising in its country? I mean, is that is there a real understanding that this looks like some sort of repeat of history, or at least echoes what's happened in the past? I mean, the liberal papers, yeah, they're scared. You know, the, the, they're 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 scared of what's happening. They they don't see themselves in it. But the AFD, they don't see themselves um, as. Uh, as Nazis per se. I mean, although some of their members are, they see themselves as patriots who are giving Germany back its place in history. It's been, you know, taken over by these EU technocrats and they just want to be good again and, you know, be in control of their own destiny. Um, So, you know, fascists never announced themselves as fascists Mm. per se. They always announced themselves as patriots, you know, the ones who are defending the true country against uh, those who have taken it away from them, i.e. bankers, i.e jews when you say that the liberals don't see themselves in it mm-hmm. do you mean that they don't identify uh neoliberalism as something that fuels the fires of right populism around the world yeah that's a nice way of putting it uh liberals they don't understand where this comes from they think it's just racism that racism just appears out of nowhere or appears because it's in their blood um it is of course racism but that racism is, is intermingled with a certain economic destitution um, and finds an outlet in certain peoples and certain scapegoats. And they don't think that this has anything to do with actually the economic constitution, with the, with the EU's role in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's, so, it's hard to explain that part, right? Because we don't want to downplay the importance of racism in these far-right movements uh, at the same time. And if you ask people, you know, what's consciously driving you, you're going to get a lot more racist answers than you're going to get economic answers. Mm-hmm. But the way that 
economic crisis and economic anxiety forms a base for this stuff is much, much less conscious, I think. And that's another another way to square the fact that, um, you know, most of the people who voted for Trump in America aren't uh, aren't poor. You know, like the average Trump voter has more money than the average Hillary Clinton voter. But they could still have economic anxiety. Yes, Yes. exactly. Yeah. 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 They still they they fear something, a slow decline of their of their power. And uh, that can be uh, that needs an explanation that needs a scapegoat. Um, And maybe they don't think about it consciously. But and isn't that part of the, the recent history of Germany, too, is that the German miracle over the last 20 years was based upon this sort of forward thinking on the part of the center left with the social democratic party and then Merkel's party, the Christian Democrats of imposing austerity upon the workforce before it even seemed necessary. Mm -hmm. The reason why it seems to me that the export market, especially in, you know, durable goods and, you know, large manufacturing means of production goods has been so uh, powerful in Germany is because there was this sort of foresight that if we squeeze the workers now, Mm -hmm. that we'll be able to have a, you know, a greater hold on the world market. And it seems very easy for folks around the world to look at Trump and be like, oh, well, that's just the United States being crazy. It's a fucking joke or whatever. Mm -hmm. But these chickens coming home to roost now Mm -hmm. all across Europe, it seems to me that it's more than just, uh, you know, an epiphenomenon that it's actually systemic, Mm -hmm. you know, of Mm -hmm. something about not just the EU project, but sort of the way that capitalism has developed over the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Germany was the sick man of Europe in the early 2000s, Mm -hmm. right? Because uh, because of such high... um, unemployment and just low growth so they did impose austerity early before the wave before the crisis hit that's why they were able to weather the crisis better they had a surplus but that surplus was dependent on the debts of uh, countries in the south who they sold their goods to um, on loans on credit so yeah you know these chickens are finally coming home to roost when those buyers can't buy their products anymore and therefore they put those factories out of work and therefore those people um they they have no jobs and they see refugees coming in taking right Mm -hmm. what's theirs and that becomes expressed in certain violent uh, it's almost like capitalism is a zero-sum game oh my god it's becoming to look more and more like that um well yeah i think that it's important that we take what you're talking about and we kind of combine it with i think the highest form of uh political praxis that exists in the united states today so i wanted to kind of play you some sound and perhaps um this will jog your memory a bit and uh be able to perhaps create the synthesis you know the new synthesis uh andy you want to go ahead and play okay, it so what happened here uh, yesterday i understand happened basically me and my friend stephanie we needed some money we saw a girl selling girl scout cookies we saw an envelope with money in it and i grabbed it and she drove away why did you do it because we needed money <laughs> We just wanted money. <laughs> what did you need the money for? Just for anything. We didn't have any money. And there, it was just an easy way of getting money. But you do realize, I mean, you're going to be charged with a crime. Oh, I was already charged with the crime and actually pissed because I should have kept that money. <laughs> charged me with all the charges I just got. But does it worry you? I mean, that, that you would well, committed a, a misdemeanor? Well, nothing's, I mean, there's nothing I can do about it now. <laughs> it's not my fault. What about the people who would say, all right, you know, it's one thing to steal money, it's another thing to do it from a nine-year-old girl selling Girl Scout cookies? I mean, money's money. (laughs) I feel bad it was a nine-year-old girl, but there was $150 in that envelope, and I wanted that money, and it was mine. So true. I just want to say that I'm sorry for offending the Girl Scout organization. Sorry you got mad. That's it. (laughs) People might say... 
it's I heard one person in our newsroom call it heartless to steal money from a from a nine year old girl. I mean, that well, doesn't... it's not her money. <laughs> true, money has a nine year old girl was selling it, but it's not like she was going to make that money. It's true. So, distributing really wealth. Yeah. The only thing that bothers me is my charges now. <laughs> what was the? I mean, what was the other crime That's that sick. you had been charged yeah. with? Domestic battery. Hell yeah. Um, pretty much, we just saw the Girl Scouts with their little table, and me and my friend were like, one. let's get that money that's in that envelope. Because <laughs> I was just sitting on the table, and it was her and her mom, and her mom wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> she was rapping to some lady, and the girl was just standing there by herself. Love America. Yeah. I missed it. God bless. So my friend goes into Winn-Dixie. I was waiting outside of here, like, ready to leave. So she grabs the envelope, she snatched it really quick, she ran to my car, and we left, and we parked, and we split the money. Why did you do it? Um... I mean, who doesn't like who doesn't like money? I, mean, I don't know, but it's a crime. She's taking a sip of her Starbucks. I know it's a crime, but it was an easy crime. It was it was easy. It was sitting right there. I mean, there's a lesson learned now, but I didn't think I was gonna get caught for it like that. I wasn't really aware of the cameras or anything. I didn't think about it. We weren't didn't really think. What was the what's the lesson you say that the that, need, that you could learn out of this? Probably not to get caught. I mean, do you have any? The logic of the market, ladies and gentlemen. That Yo, is... Uh, dead ass. The only difference praxis. between yeah. these girls and the capitalist class and the people who enclose the commons <laughs> is those people got there first. That's right. But in Before a way, they it's... made laws to prevent other people from doing that. In a way, it's super advanced because like an anarchist would say, this is my opportunity to stick it to the Girl Scouts mm, and to break mm-hmm. the law because mm. the law has no authority mm-hmm. over me. But she doesn't even care. She doesn't even think about the law or the police or anything. She's like, that's money. It yeah. belongs to me now. Yeah. She's an egoist. Yeah. <laughs> Ego is communist. She I think, understands. I think if we have any takeaway from this, it's that money is money. That's no a, deep, that's a deep theoretical point, right? It is, right? It's almost like uh, Marx, you know, he's talking yeah. about uh, 10 yards of linen equals 10 yards of linen. It's yeah. just money is money. Money is money. Yeah. It, this, this video, uh, for those who don't know, is actually some, a number of years old. But this is one of the things that I showed to Jacob. Uh, bless his heart, you know, back in the day when Sean and I were first hanging out. I remember that. Um, all of his friends were always talking about all this complex Marxist theory shit that I knew nothing about. And I would just like sit there kind of like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. And, you know, not everyone always made the most effort to include me in the conversation. But every once in a while, Jacob would like throw me a bone and be like, Jamie, Tell me about the internet. <laughs> and then Jamie would be like, I found this interesting video about money. And I'm I, like, actually, that's yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, that's it. That's Jamie, that. explain Marx in three emojis. <laughs> <laughs> it, it made me feel included. I love I love that these girls, was it in Florida? I just want to think it, it was in Florida. They said Winn-Dixie. Let's just uh, assume it's in Florida. These girls, I think you're right. Like, they didn't have any uh, bones. You know, they're not doctors. They had no bones about <laughs> fucking going. They were not uh, wearing bandanas. Or no, nothing whatsoever. In fact, they had very nice hair, and they were driving an SUV and drinking Starbucks. You know, I think that they really are the ideal subjects of, uh, of capital today. You know, they, they have no moral compass. They have no bearing. They have no actual needs except for, like, that abstract expression of need that is money, mm-hmm. right? What is more powerful than saying money is money? Mm-hmm. And I just think that, you know, maybe you could go back to Germany when you go see your family again, and you could bring some of that American American's revolutionary period. optimism uh, back, to the, back to Deutschland. I mean, who doesn't need money? Right. Exactly. Who doesn't like money? Right. 
I mean, we do and we don't, right? Like, on the one hand, we want to abolish the value form. On the other hand, we uh, constantly beg for contributions on Patreon. Jamie brings up a very interesting point. Jacob, mm-hmm. on a scale from 1 to 10, how important is it to abol- abolish the value form? Mm-hmm. I'd say it's about 9.7. Damn. Oof. So it's, a, it's, it's really important. But, but abolish is a tricky word. Mm. So in German, it's... Aufhebung. Ah, and abolish doesn't just mean everything you know, sounds so much better in German. It doesn't it just mean so to overcome. This, this, this is very right? tricky, it's right? The, yeah. When you when you when you overcome something, you don't just say, "Oh, that's bad." We move on to a new thing, and maybe that new thing is, comes out of nowhere, or we go back to an old thing, a previous thing. No, to overcome it means to really uh, move beyond it. That progresses from the standpoint you were at, so you don't mm. fall behind to a kind of previous romantic future of like barter. You know, mm-hmm. So it's like but a you, synthesis. Yeah, what do you of. what is money money allows a lot actually. It allows us to separate ourselves, to consume things on our own, free from kind of parental control or from feudal control. We or have a certain called, uh, privacy. Extra economic coercion. Right? Yeah. It allows you to be somewhat free, right? To satisfy your needs if you have it. So moving beyond the value form would have to somehow incorporate that aspect of modern life into it yeah that's i think one of the differences between socialism and communism is um if if you're going to have a purely egoist society where everyone gets to fulfill all of their needs as they come up uh you you can't have scarcity because if you are living in a world of scarcity um you're going to have to ration things somehow whether it's through a you know democratically controlled decision of the people making this stuff or through uh, the market, which is Money. what we have yeah. now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually what my dissertation is about, right? Property. Uh, so any system for distributing resources is just the system of property, mm. I, I think. So uh, it's going to be very important in the future to come up with a conception of property that allows us to meet our needs, but that really takes into account um, you know, a conscious organization of these rules of distribution which right now are kind of unconscious anarchic flow through the market. You know, it just gets distributed wildly, but usually ends up pooling um, at the top to a couple. And that's just, that's just justified. Yeah. So what, um, for the folks out there who maybe aren't as uh, well-versed in the philosophy of uh, German continental radical thinkers, how would, you, um, how would you define the value form? You know, what does it mean to even to, to aufheben the shit out of that thing? Is that, is that even something that's even possible to explain in, oh, I don't know, like a few minutes? That's a hard one. Yeah. Um, well, for, yeah, I don't know. For Marx, Marx thinks that there's something behind money. So we don't just live in a world of money. It's, it's, money doesn't just have a value in itself. Um, that if you get rid of money one day, uh, you, you still have a division of labor that's mediated through the market then money will arise again you know no matter if you have changes in productivity people will work for their needs differently and money something will take the place of money so there's you still have the formula that goes into making money right exactly you still have the same form of social relations that produces something like an equivalent between different activities that can manage the flows of productivity so even something like labor vouchers which is something that people have come up with sure. would still be a way of mediating kind of social production and also what a particular individual within that would it's a, it's a great example if we create labor vouchers so people can get exactly uh, so they get money directly to their proportion of contributing to the labor pool that sounds great right we all are all equal we're all fine but if people work at different rates then that labor chip will have to fluctuate the value of that chip will fluctuate. And then at a certain point, what's the difference between that chip and money? Right? Because right. money fluctuates based on 
the distribution of supply and demand as well. So any system that's really just uh, mediating between a division of labor that's not self-consciously organized or planned in some sense will produce something like a form of money. That's, I think, and so the value, so abolishing or reckoning with the value form is reckoning with a deep social relation Mm -hmm. under money, Mm -hmm. um, which is very difficult to do, right, because... Um, it's it's not on the surface. You can't just make a political statement against it. You really have to change the way you distribute wealth and titles to things and reorganize labor. It's funny because I'll tell a short anecdote, but I was at an organizational meeting and we were talking about some sort of uh, direct action some years back about uh, the subway, uh, which you know is in crisis in New York City. And we were talking about, I don't know, something like, a, I don't know, a fair strike or like organizing with the workers within the TWU and our friends from uh, internationalist perspective, shout out to uh, Macintosh and company. Good people. Um, while I was in the middle of talking about how this could be a very positive action for uniting, uh, you know, riders uh, with the union members, uh, you know, and also, getting people free transit, you know, at a a time when they really needed it. Uh, A gentleman stood up from IP and he said, but what does this have to do with the value form? (laughs) And that's actually, I think, the sticky point when you get into this this level of abstraction, because I'm about 9.7%, you know, that we need to reckon with with the value form itself, right? But it is so abstract, it is so imbued uh, in capitalist social relations that it's very, it's almost impossible to confront it directly. It Even is. decommodifying something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one particular aspect, like healthcare or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Still does not confront the value form because mm-hmm. it's still existing in all these different aspects mm-hmm. of, you know, of, of human life and human interaction. So I, I think that's a good anecdote to show how difficult it is to even reckon with this uh, very grand concept. You know, I haven't read the, the value theorist. Anselm Jappy and stuff. So I, you know, I'm a little bit behind. But it seems like this is a question that you can't really uh, ask in terms of like what kind of policy can you create mm-hmm. to abolish value form. This just has to has to happen in the course of a revolution. Like exactly in in Cuba, for instance. Um, like it was an incredibly popular revolutionary government, and they could have done whatever they wanted, and they just didn't know how to reorganize labor. So. Um, they basically tried two things at once, which was in agriculture, workers' self-management, like uh, under Titoism, and in industry, uh, like a centrally planned economy. Mm. And Guevara basically thought that the the way to get beyond value and money was just revolutionary enthusiasm. Mm. That workers would be like so Woo-hoo! so right. like psyched yeah. to like support the revolution that they wouldn't care about money or anything which is very maoist too actually right the great great leap forward and the uh, great proletarian cultural revolution were both about this sort of like revolutionary elan of the masses overcoming the material and social circumstances right yeah and i think that is kind of on the right track although you know if if you're following like a soviet or or chinese model there's going to be a lot of bureaucratization but it seems like that's the right path which is that people have to do the work that they do because they believe in it and they have to also be able to have a lot of democratic say over how it's done and it's just it's like hard to imagine like solving those questions now Mm -hmm. well people care about money because they associate it with having the basic necessities right Mm -hmm. like that's Mm -hmm. what they really care about they don't care about having little pieces of paper they care about having enough to eat or being satisfied with the work they do like properly compensated or that too or if they're a capitalist they care about it in the abstract as a form of social power and domination yeah Yeah. and they don't necessarily trust whatever um 
imminently forming society is coming to uh, provide those things for them yet. Yeah. And like, that's fair. They're not fair. wrong, <laughs> judging from what we've seen throughout yeah, history. I yeah. mean, you want to talk about Maoism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, to really reckon with over or post-capitalist society, you'd have to reckon with how do you deal with money and the value relations that underlie it. Uh, if you don't deal with, if you don't reckon with that, perhaps in the course of a struggle or a long process of uh, reflection, um, you know, th- th- these things don't happen overnight. You can't just have a policy that says abolish the value form. Right. That's idiotic. It, it has to come about through a reorganization of labor and a reorganization of compensation for labor, um, for satisfaction of labor, and for how our needs can be met without the anarchy of the market. And it's tough, too, because as Andy said, this, you know, this require, and you said, too, Jacob, this requires a lot of um, coordination, let's mm-hmm. just call it, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, we've seen in the past that the stum- one of the huge stumbling blocks is top-down, you know, state bureaucracy, right? Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you know, I'm agreeing with Andy here, and I think you and everybody, that the... Um, in the course of a revolutionary process, this is some a very difficult question that will have to be worked out itself, you know, in the course of the revolution, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is actually the point of maybe the one of the farthest fringes of Marxist theory that's come out in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, which is uh, communization theory, which really attacks this conception that has existed uh, for 150 years you know, since Marx, that there necessarily has to be a transitionary period, one that where money or labor vouchers would still exist, that uh, you would still have sort of one man or one person control over a factory, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd still have all, a lot of the accoutrements of capitalist uh, domination, but you would be in the course of a transition towards that abolition, that overcoming, that subsumption, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you find something um, inspiring or interesting about communization theory uh, i know that we were very interested in it back in the day but uh what have you kind of taken from it in your in your travels uh yeah i think it's an important contribution to like revolutionary thinking and thinking about uh, the history of uh, social struggles as well it comes out of a critique of kind of the social e- socialist economies of the 20th century of the never-ending transition phase right. mm. so you know there's there's been many transition phases and they, they don't ever seem to go where we want them to go so the idea was that um you know, communization is is the claim that a revolution is itself the production of communism. Right. So you produce that right by uh, imposing or or um, uh, you know rearranging the distribution of goods immediately. Communizing methods, I think yeah, uh, communi- TC calls it. Communizing right. measures. I like, yeah. I like that. It's very pragmatic. Yeah. So it's 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 more practical than ideological, right? And but the the, the thing about this theory is. Here's the, the strange part. They don't think that this is something you need to advocate for. Mm. They think this is kind of the name of the process that occurs in a revolution. Um, if, if there was a revolution that was going to end up communistically, it would be like this. Mm. So it's more of a descriptive normative account than, like, than just an ideology to advocate. They're describing what would have to take place. Um, and that would mean you know, uh, um, communizing uh, relations of production, of need, of, of, of goods. Um, mm. It's the in- first rule of communization is don't talk about communization, <laughs> exactly. right? Hick Rhodes, Hick Salta. Less talk, more rock. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because uh, communization theorists get, um, and we're friends with some of them, they get uh, smeared with a lot of labels, and one of them is as being anarchist. But in a sense, if you read Theory Communist, <laughs> or you read Jill Dove, yeah. or you Andy read Riff Raff, or if you read... Uh, 
and notes, for example. Uh, very, <laughs> very, <laughs> very, very, very much uh, sort of imbued in a, with a Marxist analysis yeah, of the world, of and yeah. very much you know that famous Marx quote where it's like it's not up to us to tell the world you know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know we're just recognizing the I'm mangling it right, but yeah. the conditions already in existence. Um, you know some of that is based on a historical periodization mm-hmm. of like maybe there was a time when the affirmation of the proletariat could yeah. be the linchpin of the revolution yeah. and now it's about the self-abolition of the proletariat within the communizing process of revolution itself <laughs> that will bring us to the horizon uh thank but, you sir w- thank you with all those with all those things said i think that um you know there's a lot of people that here who listening who will disagree with it, but I think it is, if nothing else, a really good provocation exactly. and a really interesting way. I think of, of imagining how we could not make the same mistakes that we made in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I would recommend reading the first issue of Endnotes for anyone who, <laughs> Endnotes. for anyone who hasn't uh, come up, heard this term before it, it covers some debates in the French ultra left of the seventies and eighties and nineties over the history of revolution in the 20th century. What went wrong? Was revolutions betrayed mm. by political leaders? That was kind of a standard theory. It still is a standard theory well, on the left. Council communists uh, generally and some left comms as well. Yeah, yeah, they believe that revolutions were betrayed by some evil figure. And the idea behind this, this debate on communization was that, no, it wasn't betrayed. Um, it was limited by its historical conditions, which couldn't go further than reproducing kind of self-managed um, kind of self-managed exploitation of the working class. Whereas like we're in a new period now after the 70s, in which our class belonging, you know, which is one of their favorite words, mm-hmm. can no longer be the basis of reformulating our revolutionary power. It can only be uh, abolished in the process of struggle. It's hard to even imagine what that would look like. Like, I always want to take things back to, like, what's practical and actionable. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about communization without uh, an organized class or without an independent institution behind it. Like... What does that actually look like? Like everybody finally um, develops a consciousness of the way things should be. And they're like, all right, this shit is ours now. <laughs> like what's what goes on? Jacob, uh, Jacob and I, and I believe Andy was there too in Marseille uh, some years back for the uh, first meeting for a journal called SICK, an international journalism for communization. And it was very interesting. It was very fun. We had some Kind of good times, I guess. But uh, there's we all a, got sick. Yes, we all did. Got sick as fuck. How um, fitting! It's a dirty city. Yeah, dirty. Marseille is beautiful, but very dirty. Don't swim there. Um, but yeah, there's uh, one gentleman. I believe he goes by the name of Elaine, who is a uh, kind of a scraggly old sort of Swasan Huitard, May sixty eighter. You know, been through Militant. a lot of struggles and uh, kind of like a burnt out dude, but. He really sold communization to all us young people one day at the bar when we were asking him, like, you know, what's it going to be like? And he's going to be, and he was saying in his like thick French accent, he's like, just imagine decades of ancient plagues and primitive <laughs> surgery. Just imagine the, everything that you believe in just being destroyed in the purifying fires of like proletarian revolution that mm. is, seeks to abolish the proletariat. He didn't really sell I'm it sold. that well. That was the more apocalyptic, catastrophic tendency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That sounds a little and prim but, almost. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah, not really, yeah. 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 The, I, I think he was trying to, to tell all of us youngsters that, uh, as Mao said, uh, revolution is not a dinner party. That uh, it will include uh, primitive surgery. <laughs> oh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's better not to lie to people about that, right? Yeah. Maybe you don't like, want to lead with it. Though. The first year after the revolution, we're going to take some legs. Uh, you you ever seen uh, On the Road? You ever read uh, On the Road with Cormac McCarthy? The That's Road. The Road. The Road. <laughs> you know, the road. <laughs> Jack Sorry, Kerouac. Cormac Kerouac. It's Cormac. when uh, people travel around a post-apocalyptic house yeah. and finding themselves. And take LSD. <laughs> Telling poetry. Yeah, don't hitchhike on that road. <laughs> My son. <laughs> I'm not taking my son. <laughs> Kein Standard, hör auf mich zu analysieren Und versuch deinen Neid einfach anders zu kanalisieren Bitch, dein Leben ist fake, mein Rap ist real Wenn du dich gerade ärgerst, bin ich jetzt am Ziel Und ich steck mir diesen Joint an Weil mich alles, was ich nervt, so krass freut mal SXDM, das beste Team Deine Olle wird so lesbensive Sex mit mir Ein Fick in dein Arsch aus West-Berlin Das Neukölln, wo kann Messer ziehen Du bist fake und du wärst gerne Drake Doch ich hab heute keine Rote für dich Alle Hosts werden stone von dem Shit Diese Show, dieser Flow, diese Bitch Ich ficke deine Mutter ohne Schwanz Ich rauch dein ganzes Leben in dem Blatt Spaß mehr mit uns, euer Arsch wird gebumst. Deine Mutter. 